If you want to use LLMs to write better with sentences, brainstorming, note-taking, all that jazz, Steven Johnson, our guest today, has probably thought more about this stuff than anyone on planet Earth over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. Steven Johnson has written 13 books. Now he's using these tools all the time, and he's working with Google to build their notebook LM product. So in this piece, we talk a lot about structure, like how do you structure your writing? Why is it so important? How does structure recede and fade into the background, but why it's so important for writers to get right? The dangers of over-editing, how to tell a story, how to think about flow and all that jazz. I think that Steven is one of the most prolific nonfiction writers over the last 20 years or so. And this is a masterclass in the cutting edge of AI, how you can use that to improve your own writing, at the level of the sentence, the paragraph, outlines, and your overall piece. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Stephen Johnson. Man, it is so cool to be doing this. I'm so delighted to be here. It is so cool because along, I was just saying to you in the elevator coming up at the St. Regis, along a certain vector of writing and thinking about tools for thought and how technology can amplify the writing process. I think you've thought about this maybe more than anyone alive today. Maybe to a fault, like maybe too much I've thought about it. But, um, you know, I'm really delighted that there's an actual venue where I can talk about these things. So thank you for creating this. Well, you have been writing with technology and thinking about how to do this for 20, 30, 40 years. Years. Yeah. And... Now you've had this opportunity to work with the team at Google on building Notebook LM and thinking about how we can use technology and AI to amplify thought. What is the number one thing that you have taught the Googlers? You know, I think the the folks at Google, it's at Google Labs, so we're, we're building this Notebook LM thing. And, and I think that I was originally brought in because, one, I'm a, a writer and a writer who's written a lot about tools for thought, as you said. Um, but I think the the surprising thing that actually surprised me in a way, it was something that I learned along with the rest of the team, is that the the primary skill in getting a large language model to do something is command of clear, persuasive prose. Sure. It's not a it's not a, it doesn't really matter whether you can program in C when you sit down to like write a prompt to talk to the model. What you really want to be able to do is like get the model to do something using convincing, clear, declarative sentences. And so it turned out to be that, like, while I have almost no programming background, there's a lot in the way that Notebook works where I I actually wrote the prompt because <laughs> we had a writer on the team, right? And so there was a, a quality of um, kind of a surprising importance of prose style in, in actually making the, the application work properly, which I think is just, I mean, nobody saw this coming in a way in the technology world that that writing skills would be so important to to getting machines to to function properly now and tell me what were some of the things that were really important to you as you began to build this tool like the thing that stands out to me is the high status of citations and sources yeah the the sources are saved over time. So what you can do is you can basically say, I want you to pull from these canonical references of sources. And then also it's very good about citing its sources in a way that say a tool like GPT isn't. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about is that I've had this long history of like keeping digital copies of all the things that I read so that they were in, in the old days so that they were just searchable, right? It was just, so, if I had a digital copy 
of quotes from books that I'd read as research, it was just a thousand times easier to like find that quote six months later when I was, you know, working on the the book or the article or whatever that I'd done the research for. What language models and AI have, have kind of changed all this is that it's no longer just about like searching with the kind of keyword string the way you know we used to do in in the old days. Um, you can actually ask open-ended questions. You can ask for summaries. You can ask for kind of highlights, all these different things. And if you design the system the right way so that you're not just talking to a language model, but you're talking to a language model that effectively has read all of your notes or all of your right. quotations or all of your documents, what we call sources, as you said, um, suddenly you can do things that go so far beyond search. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is um, you can ask um, you can ask something like, in my reading notes, what are the most surprising facts about dolphins? And so, it, 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 like on some level, the the models actually are able to kind of understand, you know, in quotes, what it means for information to be surprising, mm-hmm. right? There, you're not just saying like, find me all the things that mention dolphins, but actually find me the most interesting things about dolphins in my notes. Um, and so, we, it was it was really animated by this idea that if you have a body of of core knowledge that is your kind of core source material and you attach that to a state-of-the-art language model, the whole workflow of kind of writing and thinking and researching is just going to be revolutionized. Um, In one sense, it's just going to be like 10 times faster, like your ability to get to the insight or the quote that you're looking for or to get a page of summaries of quotes that are relevant to the thing you're working on in that particular moment, that's going to be much faster. But then, you know, we can talk about this in more detail. Like, you also have this possibility of like really collaborating and kind of going to the AI and saying, "Hey, <laughs> I just wrote this paragraph. What did I miss? Like, what else is in my reading history that might be relevant to the paragraph that I just wrote?" And for the first time in the history of computers, the computer can answer that question. Yeah, I almost feel validated because many years ago I had lunch with a guy named Brian Norgard, who was really instrumental in building the UI UX at Tinder, of all things. (laughs) And I think he was a director of product there. And he's a brilliant product guy. And we sat down and we spoke about this idea that I had for this writing tool, where what you would have was on the left side of the screen, you would be writing. And on the right side of the screen, at the top would be your notes and your notes would change. And then there'd be like a public set of sources that would change. And I deeply thought about building this product. I was looking through my notes for it today and some of the, even the drawings that I did for it. I did some hand drawings and I was like, you kind of <laughs> built this thing. <laughs> yeah. You asked uh, uh, kind of what I brought to the Google team for this project. Like in a weird way, I, I do feel like I've been preparing to to make this tool for for almost 40 years. Like I've been thinking about this really since I was in, since I was in college. So, you know, 36 years, something like that. And so, you know, kind of day one on the job, everybody's like, well, what should we build? And I was like, well, I've got 36 years worth of like ideas here. Like, let's go, you know? And so I think we were able to kind of like, we built it pretty quickly with a small team in part because there was this stored up um, body of, uh, of thinking that I had. Well, you were talking about surprise, and one of my favorite things that's been said on the show comes from Derek Thompson, writer at The Atlantic, and he says that interestingness equals surprise times novelty. And I want to talk about your new book, The Infernal Machine, and how you think about these elements of surprise, these surprising stories as you begin to weave together 
this tapestry of vignettes. What are you reading for to find these surprises and then thinking through what actually makes it into a final book? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, surprise is so in- important and such an important part of learning, right? You like you pay attention to things that surprise you. Like the the brain is constantly like making predictions about what is supposed to come next, which is, by the way, how a language model works as well, which is interesting. And that happens on a reading experience, right? You're like, okay, I'm reading this sentence and I kind of have a vague sense of where this is going. And when you're bored, you're bored because you know what's coming next. And when you're leaning forward and engaging, it's because you're surprised by what's coming next. And when you're really surprised by what came next, you're confused. <laughs> right. So, so there's you have to hit this like sweet spot of... I'm, I don't quite know what's happening, but I'm intrigued, but I'm not completely lost. And that's and that's the challenge of it. In a lot of my books, Infernal Machine, the new one, um, is a great example of this, but um, this is true in kind of half of them, I would say. Uh, a lot of the surprise comes from connecting different uh, fields or different narrative arcs, um, uh, different disciplines in unusual ways. Um, and so, you know, in, in Infernal Machine, it's the story that weaves together kind of the birth of like forensic science and the early detectives on the NYPD and the anarchists, this incredible period of anarchist bombings that were happening in, in New York City, really the worst period of terrorism in the history of the United States right around the turn of the century, about 120 years ago. Um, and the kind of birth of the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover. And so you have like all these different threads, like the invention of dynamite, which makes terrorism possible. Um, so it's a story that involves kind of science, chemistry, forensic science, anarchist political philosophy, like, you know, the, the FBI. And when when it starts, you're kind of like, I'm in Russia and I'm in London and I'm in Paris and I'm in you know New York City and all these different characters who seem completely unrelated. And slowly over time, they kind of converge in the streets of New York and and for this kind of epic battle that unfolds. Um, And so part of the surprise is just like the reader being like, how is this all going to come together? Like, how is this author going to get these 12 disparate people like in the same room on some level or in the same plot? And the challenge for that is you have to put enough kind of signals into the prose to convince the reader that you are going to pull it off. Because the risk is always, when, when people were reading Infernal Machine in, in um, early manuscript form, the thing I kept asking is like, in the first third, do you feel it all lost? And do you feel like, why are these people all in the same book? Or do you trust that it's going to converge? And and in general, I think people felt that. But that was the thing I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out is whether it would, you know, you'd feel that confidence that it was going to come together. Right. You were talking about how that's what LLMs are doing. They're guessing. And I have to commend you. I So you wrote that piece in New York Times Magazine. Took you like seven, eight months on GPT. And I got to say, that was my quake moment for yes. GPT. I remember exactly, exactly where I was sitting. It's a 10,000 word piece. And I remember the feeling like, you know what I wish I had? I wish I had a heart rate monitor <laughs> for how my heart rate changed through that piece. Yeah. But I got to tell you, the highlight of that piece is the way you end the first paragraph and lead into the second paragraph. Thank you. You did such a masterful job. I have to commend you. Can you talk about how you did that? Yeah. So and what you did. Yeah. So I had that idea early on. So the two funny things about that piece. The first is um, 
I originally, I originally pitched it. This is hilarious. In the fall of 2021, and I went to my wonderful editor, uh, Bill Wozik, who's a great writer in his own right, um, and I said, everybody's already written, you know, plenty of things about GPT-3. Everybody knows it's really interesting. Um, but I want to write a different piece because it turns out OpenAI has this really weird org organizational structure, governance structure, because it's like half a nonprofit and half a for-profit and nobody knows about this. And I think that would be an interesting piece, which turned out to be <laughs> very interesting because that's what caused the whole crisis uh, a, a few months ago between the nonprofit group and the, the for-profit side. Um, so they, the Times was like, great, you know, fantastic, write that piece. And so then I got access to GPT-3 in, I think it was like October of 2021. And I sat down with it the first night and just started experimenting. And I was like, oh man, there is so much more to be said about this. Like, this is so much bigger than I realized. And so I went back to them and said, I'll mention the governance piece, but I'm just going to write about what it means that computers have mastered language. Like that was the kind of framing of the piece. Um, and so then early on, I had this idea, um, given that large language models are just predicting the next word in a sentence um, based on the previous words in the context. Um, and given that the, the surprise in a way, I think everybody in the field feels that it was a surprise, that that simple act of kind of training and honing the, the model's ability to, to predict word sequences would turn out to be so powerful and so flexible and, and creative in many ways. Um, that that simple action would would generate so many possibilities. Um, that's in some sense part of what the piece is about. And so it occurred to me that I could open the piece and write a paragraph um, and then omit the last word. <laughs> and so that the the reader would, um, and, and the line is something like, you know, you're reading this magazine article, but then something very strange happens. It appears that the writer has deliberately omitted the final word of the first and so then there's this blank spot, and then I kind of step back and, and say, but you filled it in, actually. You predicted, you, you heard the word paragraph there. Um, and just think about the kind of intelligence you have to build in your own brain to be able to predict that next word and all the kind of assumptions that go into the conventions of magazines and sentence structure and the meaning of the words you've just read that enable you to make that prediction. And that becomes the launching pad for the, for the piece. So... I came up with this structure. Talk about, you know, the kind of structure of an article. I came up with this idea. I was in a hotel. I, I, I just interviewed all the open AI people. I was in a hotel room in San Francisco and I was like sitting there like back in the hotel room, drinking a glass of wine and kind of jotting some notes. And I came up with this idea. It's a reference, by the way, to the Italo Calvino novel, If on a Winter's Night, a Traveler, which I'm sure 1% of the readers actually got that too. But it, it's uh, it, for people who are really into metafiction from the 1960s, it, it had added meaning. So I, wrote, <laughs> I, so I basically wrote that first paragraph. And I was, I was like a month away from handing in a first draft of this piece. I had, a ton, I had not written any of it. It was 10,000 words. So, so I had a lot to write. Um, but I sent it to Bill, my editor at the Times, and I said, <laughs> the subject editor was, are you going to let me get away with this? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I might actually. I mean, I'd like to see the rest of the piece, but we might do it. Um, and, you know, and then we ran it. Well, it's very self-indulgent and beautiful and actually like almost like moved to tears. Like it was so exquisitely done. And I just, 
it wasn't cheesy and you did it in a way where you said what you needed to say, but more importantly, you showed what you needed to show. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Yeah, I was very proud of that. What are you going for when you write those magazine pieces? Because you did the Bitcoin one about four years before, yeah? Yeah. The the I've done basically four of these pieces for the magazine that have been very long. And it's just an incredible gift to, to give a writer, to give them that much length in, in a magazine. I mean, it's just, it's a lot of words. Um, and it, it actually has been a, it's a format that I think we'll see more of because it's a really lovely length um, in that it lets you really explore a topic in detail, um, tell a complex story with multiple threads, but you're not forced to fill out a 60,000 word book with that information. And they're just a bunch of stories or arguments that, you know, really shouldn't be condensed down to a 1500 word blog post, but really shouldn't be expanded up into a, um, into a 60,000 or hundred thousand word book. Um, and on the internet, it's easier to, you know, you can publish those things that way, or you can do multiple, you know, editions of a Substack um, email or something like that, that tells a story that's that length. But the magazine lets me do that. And, and they've been really a lot of fun to do. And how how do you think about structure differently between fifteen hundred word article, a ten thousand word essay, and a hundred thousand word book? Yeah, the biggest difference is between the the short format essay. Obviously, in that point, you really you're limited to what you can do. There's just a certain amount of um, headroom you just don't have, so you have to pretty much make a point. Um, and you can try and figure. You know, you're trying to figure like what's the what's the best opening paragraph here? And, you know, you're going to tell one story maybe in, in the course of the blog post or the the newsletter or the short article, but you're not able to weave together things um, it, it, in the same level. But once you get to 10,000 words or 100,000 words, I don't know, they're possible. I, I think of them quite similarly. Like, for instance, the the piece that I did about this guy, Thomas Mitchell Jr., um, the, the chemist who... Uh, created both leaded gasoline and the CFCs that caused the whole in the ozone layer. One guy, uh, it was called the man who broke the world. He dies, he, he gets paralyzed with polio and um, builds in a lab because he's a kind of inveterate tinkerer and inventor. He builds a contraption to get himself out of bed with a series of pulleys and stuff like that. And then he ends up um, getting strangled by it and dies at the hands of the machine that he built. Now, oh, wow. it's believed that he actually used it to commit suicide, but the story was that he accidentally died that way. So so here's this guy who invented all these things that had all these devastating consequences, and then he invents something for himself, and it ends up being an instrument in his own death, right? Quite so, the metaphor. Quite the metaphor, right? So that that was a great example of like the structure of a piece like that. We, um, uh, Bill and I wrote this with, with Bill Wozik as my editor. Um, we're like, it, it, it should be like um, Sunset Boulevard. There, there's a dead body floating in the pool at the in the first shot. And then it's like, we're going to back up and find out how that body got there. And so like Midgley dies in the first paragraph in that piece. Um, and then, but you know, you could have made a different choice. You could have been like, and the ultimate irony at the end of this whole story is, you know, that Midgley died. And the other thing about structure in, in a piece like that, um, is that you aren't quite as bound to chronology in the way that you maybe are with a nonfiction 
you know, history book. Like the, the book kind of wants to flow in a linear fashion for, from kind of start to finish with, with flashbacks occasionally. Um, but with that piece, we, you know, we've contemplated a lot of different structures where we're like, maybe we, you know, maybe after he dies, then we're like contemplating the landscape of like the carnage that he unleashed on the world and the ozone hole and leaded gasoline and all that stuff. And then we come back to like understand how he invented it and what he was thinking at the time. And I don't think you have an expectation that you're going to go on a strict timeline in a, in a piece like that. Whereas in a history book, there's a bit more of an expectation you do that. Tell me about these relationships that you have with your editors. You've mentioned a few editors already. Yeah. Well, another great editor story is, um, so I wrote a book, um, maybe my favorite book of all of them, except for the new one, which is, is the new one always the favorite book? <laughs> well, it is a little bit because you're not sick of it yet, you know? Right. Um, but I wrote this book called Enemy of All Mankind, which uh, came out a couple of years ago. It's it's basically a story about a pirate, Henry Every, who pulled off the arguably the largest heist in the history of crime in, eight, in 1695. And, and the story of how I got to that book we should talk about. But um, one of the things that was challenging about that book is that it had, again, you know, this multi-threaded structure where it was telling the story of every himself and how he kind of assembles his crew. He mutinies a, a ship to take it over. But it's also trying to set this context because it's right as the East India Company is kind of taking off. Um, the uh, richest man in the world, Aranza, the Grand Mughal of India, is a major figure. So you have to kind of like explain the kind of birth of corporate capitalism and in public companies and the East India Company, you have to understand why India was so wealthy at that point, the calico trade that was generating all this wealth. That, and so there's just a lot of scene setting to do. And the first chapters kind of like bounced around, you know, in all these different directions. And the main protagonist or, you know, kind of anti-hero of it, Henry Every, the pirate, would go kind of unmentioned in the first draft. He would go unmentioned for like 15 pages at a time. And when my uh, editor, Courtney Young at Riverhead, who I've worked with on a lot of books, is fantastic. Um, when she read the first draft, she was like, "It, we can't ever lose sight of every for too long. Like that he's the one hook that the, the reader has. He knows that there's this pirate and, or she knows that there's this pirate and um, if you leave the pirate for too long, they're going to be like, where's the pirate? I can't tell the pirates, you know, they're going to be lost. And so she, she actually said that she, she built, you know, they call it a crazy wall or just like the scene from, you know, the movies where somebody is, uh, you know, it's like the usual suspects or something like that. They've got all the suspects up on the wall and they're trying to see the connections between them up. So she built basically a kind of crazy wall for the beginning, the first third of enemy of all mankind where she had like, these are all the pieces and like, how can we organize this so that one, it goes a little faster, it's a little shorter and we never lose sight of Henry Every for more than six pages or something like that. We had some kind of goal like that. And it's like having somebody who, um, just like a second pair of eyes, who's looking at something that early and thinking about the structure side of it. Um, cause later on, you know, when you share a book, in manuscript form, generally people are not coming back to you with comments like, you should really reorganize the whole thing so that it it's told in reverse chronological order or something like that. Like, no, like that's not the kind of notes you get. You get like, hey, I really like this. I want to hear more about that character. And 
I thought this was a little clunky in this part, or I disagree with the argument, but the, the, the deep structure that's kind of baked into the book, most readers, it's like a, law of the universe of the book. I mean, it really is like designing a house, right? So you're early in the house and you have the early schematics and someone's like, hey, you put the garage all the way on the east side. It needs to be all the way on the west side because otherwise they're going to walk in through the bedroom before they get to the living room. And that's going to be a weird situation. But if you've built the house and it's all there and you say something like that, you're like, yeah, could you have please told me that? Could you have told me this <laughs> earlier? Once the house is built, you need to be talking about the wallpaper. You need to be talking about the furniture. You need to be talking about what hangs on the walls. So the actual content of what is worth discussing changes over time. The So there are two really crazy stories about structure in in, in my career, I think. Um, and the, the, the first one is uh, my book, The Ghost Map, which is actually the, despite the fact that it's about cholera is actually the best selling of all my books. Um, I think in part because it has this kind of detective stories structure. It's, it's, uh, following the, this terrible outbreak of cholera in London in the 1850s. And this guy, Jon Snow, who's not the Jon Snow from the game of Thrones, uh, who basically solves the mystery of where cholera is coming from, which is a major medical advance in the period. Um, and you know, it's a major kind of breakthrough both in terms of public health, but also the history of cities and all that kind of stuff. And so it's effectively, there's a killer on the loose in Victorian London, and there's a detective trying to track it down. The killer is a, is a bacterium, not Jack the Ripper, but it's the same architecture, right? So so that that part of it was pretty clear. Like it's going to be, there's going to be a kind of detective story structure to this. But I also wanted to riff on all these different ideas. I wanted to riff on the history of cities and the relationship between microbes and, you know, the metropolis. And I wanted to riff on maps because there's a map in this in information design that, that's at the center of the story. And I wanted to capture, like, how crazy London was at that period and all that stuff. So I had all these themes that I wanted to explore. And at some point in the early stage of kind of sketching out that book, I'd done a lot of research but I hadn't really started writing. Um, I realized that I could do it um, where a structure where like each chapter would be a day. There was an actual chronology to it. So it takes place over about two weeks of this outbreak. And so each chapter is like, you know, um, Sunday, August 30th, 1854. And there's a title and whatever, but each chapter is a day. And I realized that the, given the events that happen on each day, there was kind of a logical um, opportunity to riff on one of the themes that I wanted to cover that day. And so I figured out, oh, wait, day one, I can do the whole thing about like scavengers and waste recycling and all stuff in London because I'm introduced to the scene and I can start there. And then day two, I can do, you know, the um, birth of public health because it's starting here. And day three, because of the events that are happening, I can do that. And it's to this day, like one of the things I'm most proud of that I've ever done in any of my books. And, um, that book was reviewed extensively, got wonderful reviews. No one has ever mentioned that. <laughs> and I think that it's one of these things like when structure works, you don't notice it. Exactly. You know? And so it's, but it's like design. You feel it. Yeah. Well, yeah. we were just walking out of the elevator here when we came up and I said, ah, it's a Norman door. And what that is, is the door pushes, but there's a handle. So you think it pulls. <laughs> right. Right. And you're right, like, right. ah, right. When you push, it should be flat yeah. because that yeah. implicitly communicates to you that you push. And then when you pull, there should be the handle. 
And I've gone in and out of that door like 25 times since coming to the hotel. You're and still every mad time, about it. I can I'm tell. I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm increasingly angry about it. I, you know, it's not, it's, it's not like I'm going to ever make peace with this. And that's just like structure. Yeah. That structure is invisibly telling you what to expect, what to think. And like you said, when it's done right, it just recedes into the background. But this is the thing that writers know how important structure really is. Because once you find the structure, a lot of things just fall into place. Totally. So the other structure story that um, is interesting, which I think has a slightly different lesson, which is more or less the importance of structure, which is the same lesson, which is um, I've had several cases where an enemy of all mankind, the pirate book, is, a, is the most dramatic example of this, where the, the original idea for the book was the structure and then the content came later. So with enemy, I had this idea of like, it would be really cool to write a history book that begins with an event that is ideally very short and compressed in time, but something dramatic happens. You know, maybe ideally it takes place over like minutes, not, you know, days. And you start with that event in the preface, basically. And then you go back 300 years and you tell the story of all the forces that had to converge for that event to happen. The, you know, macro technological scientific forces, the you know, the individual lives, the economic forces, whatever it is. And then the middle of the book converges back on that thing. And then the second half of the book is like all the downstream consequences cool. of it. Right. I was like, that would be a really beautiful structure for a book. But I was like, I don't know what to put in that structure. I don't have the content for it. I just know that that architecture would be interesting. And so in my, I'm sure we'll talk about this in my spark file somewhere, you know, many years ago, there's a note, like it would be really cool to have a book that's structured kind of like an hourglass where there's a thing in the middle and you, but, and I kind of described that structure. And then I sat on that idea for literally years. Like, I think it was maybe like three or four years. It was in the back of my mind. I wrote some other things and I was like, I'd love to find the right thing to put in that structure. And then at some point I thought, oh, what if the event is a crime? which isn't the most, you know, shocking, uh, true crime is obviously like a relatively lucrative field. Um, but I was like, the nice thing about crimes is that they're, they often are fast. Like they happen in instance or in, you know, a matter of seconds or minutes or something like that. And so what if there's a crime that had a lot of forces leading into it and a lot of downstream consequences? And so that narrowed it a little bit. And so then I could start, basically I could start Googling, like I could start like famous crimes in history, kind of like just exploring the world of like reading books about the history of crime. And then I think maybe like a year later, I stumbled across the story about Henry Every. And I was like, that could fit. And there's a note, you know, that's in my files. It's just like, whoa, what about this guy? And it's like a quote from Wikipedia about him. And like, that could be kind of good. That might fit that structure. And then I dug around a little bit more and I was like, okay, that's it. Yeah, I think that what's has shown up as a theme repeatedly is all this work that you do for many years without even realizing that that work is going to have a payoff in the end. So you're talking about that there where you had this idea for this, this structure of a piece. I've actually never even heard of someone who said, I have an idea for the structure, but I don't even know the content that needs to fit into that. And then that's also where we started this conversation where you said, look, I have been thinking about these things for 36 years <laughs> and only now does it feel like everybody's talking about it. And it seems to me that the core thing there is this spark file where you throw yeah. ideas in and then things begin to grow organically from there. It's like the seeds that you sow and then the fruits just sort of show up over time. You're like, oh, whoa. But you're just sort of tending to that garden without even realizing it. 
Yeah, that. So the spark file comes out of um, the book I wrote, Where Good Ideas Come From, which the opening chapter, which is called The Slow Hunch. One of the key things I was trying to do in that book, which is really about how innovation works and creativity works, um, was to say like the whole dominant metaphor that we have for creativity is like ridiculously over-indexed on eureka moments and light bulb moments and epiphanies and like i the apple fell from the tree and i have a theory of gravity like everybody loves to tell the story like that but actually when you go back and look at like really interesting ideas whether they're creative writerly ideas or scientific ideas they almost always have this very long incubation period where there's like a there's a sense of possibility there's a hunch that that there's something interesting but you're not really sure what to do with it you're like hey i've got an idea for a structure of a book but i don't know what the topic is you know like i don't even know literally what it takes place or who the characters are and they just stay in that hunch state and they kind of evolve and connect to other ideas a little bit but they often stay there for long periods of time before they really germinate to use the seed metaphor you're using and so that if you if you believe in that theory which i do obviously um that means you have to be like writing all those hunches down because those are and 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 revisiting them because those are like the hunch is the most fleeting of ideas because mm-hmm. it's not attached to anything. It doesn't have any actionable, you know, utility in the moment. It's just like, I think there's something there. And and by the way, like um we talked earlier about surprise. Like that surprise is kind of a like I just try to capture things that surprise me, even if I don't understand them. Um, and kind of like lean into those things, be like, okay, that was weird. I wasn't expecting that. And I don't even know what that means, but because I don't know what it means, I I should store that away because maybe I will eventually understand it. You know, whereas I think a lot of times people are like, well, I would like to just focus on the things that I understand. One of the things I just want to pop in here, because one of the things that's important is that you're not over intellectualizing this. You're not saying, oh, it needs to work out in this particular way. You're just like, huh, I just felt a ping of surprise. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to trust that yeah. and I'm going to write it down. Yeah. I'm not, I don't need to justify every surprise. Yeah. And and this is, um, you know, this is something, I, I, I know you've talked to Tiago Forte, who, uh, uh, you know, it's a pal of mine and, and it's someone we've worked with a little bit with Notebook LM and like he's great on this too, which is like capturing things before you know where they go. Like the the idea, this is why I'm kind of opposed to even tagging things um, because I feel like you just want to capture things um, without spending any time. You want like frictionless capture as possible. And any time you spend being like, oh, this idea connects to these seven other ideas and I'm going to build the tags and the link system to like make sure that they're connected. Like to me, that gets in the way of just reading and thinking and um, and but but you do need to capture it. And. So the, the way that I did that for, for many years is that I would create what I called a spark file, um, which could have been called a hunch file if I'd been like consistent with my branding, I suppose. But anyway, I called it a spark file. And it was just like, it was initially a Word doc, then it became a Google doc, um, where I just put everything that occurred to me that was interesting at all. And it would be like random quotes from things and random story ideas and Um, and you know, oh my gosh, there was this pirate Henry Every, you know, maybe there's something there. Um, and it was, I don't know, it was longer than, it was longer than any of my books. I think it would ended up being like 120,000 words or something like that. It was a big, long file. And the key thing that I tried to do, uh, was to revisit it every, I don't know, six months or so, and really just kind of read through it. Um, because the thing about the hunches is that 
you know, the hunch you had in 2016 that kind of didn't make sense but seemed interesting. In 2024, like, maybe you have the missing piece that turns out into an actual, like, story idea or a startup idea or whatever it is you're you're doing for your work. Um, and so it gives, like, it basically, like, gives you the opportunity to kind of, like, brainstorm with your past selves in a weird way. Like, oh, I had this idea eight years ago and now I'm a different person and I see it in a new light and I can now finally kind of complete the thought in this way. Um, so that that has been very valuable. I've kind of switched over and I'm now trying to kind of do that inside of Notebook LM, which is kind of interesting and trying to figure out how to design Notebook LM to kind of encourage that workflow. Because now, you know, we can get into this more, but now instead of just me rereading the hunches and in the Spark file and making the connections on my own, now I have this AI that can also make connections. And that just was never really possible before. Um, yeah, the thought that my computer might come to me and be like, Stephen, you just wrote this paragraph, but you've forgotten this thing you wrote a while back. Um, that actually might be relevant to you. Like that possibility is really electrifying for me. Yeah. Have you heard that? There's a great speech that Johnny Ive gave at Steve Jobs Memorial Service. And I was the chief designer at Apple and so close to Steve Jobs. And he said, the thing that Steve Jobs understood better than anybody else is that young ideas are fragile. Yeah, yeah. I've seen and that. And the uh, young yeah. idea yeah. has to be treated. And I don't know if he said this or, yeah. or if it's how I imagine it, that it's like a little dove. And it's like this little baby dove and you have to hold it in a very tender way and you have to nurture it. And if anything's too harsh, the dove will just die. And you have to sort of nurture it and let it grow. And then- only later can the dove fly. But early on with those hunches, there's a certain way, like a tenderness, a care that you have to give that idea because those ideas can be squashed yeah. so fast, so easily. Like, I, it's almost like it's not so much that they need to be, you, you can almost like ignore some of the hunches. Like, as long as you capture them and don't just like criticize them out of the gate. Um, it, as long as you just give them some time, um, I think that that's that that's really the best approach with that kind of thing. And this is a theme that shows up over and over and over again since you wrote that 2005 piece in New York Times called Tools for Thought. How can we improve, amplify our thinking by using these technologies? So, yeah, I first got the little taste of that in I was I was a sophomore in college. It was 1987. And Apple came out with a program called HyperCard that most people have forgotten now. Um, this is before the web had even been kind of designed at that point. Berners-Lee was still two years away from the kind of first version of that. I was not connected to the internet in any way. I didn't really get on the internet until I went to grad school. Um, but HyperCard was a kind of preview of the web. It, was a, it, it had a kind of hypertext architecture. You had these cards where you could put information on them and you could basically make links between the cards. And it was kind of a note-taking tool. It was kind of an open, kind of human, natural language, programming language kind of tool. And it never really took off, but everybody who got into it, like I did, you know, changed the course of their lives. And I got obsessed with like, oh, I could build a tool to help me with my research for my classes. And I'm going to take my notes in this tool and I'm going to optimize it for the way that I like to work. And I'm going to have this kind of research patrol assistant here. And 
So it had a little programming language. And so I kind of, this is like, kind of taught myself how to program it. And I built this program called Curriculum. That's what I called it. And it was, the joke about it is that I like got so obsessed with building a tool to help me with my classes that I stopped going to my classes because I was like, I just want to build this tool, you know. And I used it for a little bit, but it, it, it's one of these things where you get a taste of something that is possible. And like the technology is not ready yet, um, but you, you get this little glimpse of what might be possible and it just sticks in the back of your mind and you spend the rest of your life chasing it. And so that's kind of the journey I've been on. I started using in the early 2000s, I started using this program called Devon Think or Devon Think. I don't even know how it's pronounced. Um, it anticipated some of the stuff that was in that's now in large language models in the sense that it could detect semantic relationships between blocks of text. And so even if the two paragraphs in question didn't have any words in common, if one was about, you know, kind of game theory and one was about um, tit for tat behavior in bats <laughs> that are conceptually linked to each other, it was amazingly able at the time to say, hey, these things are closer to each other in kind of the semantic space than these other paragraphs, right? And so what I did was I started um, <laughs> laboriously typing up all the quotes from books that I read. I would sometimes have research assistants do it, or I would do it. I would try OCR, but it was terrible. But I would basically try and get these digital copies of all the quotes from the books that I was using as research or articles or whatever. And I would put them into Devon Think, And then I could find things very quickly, which is great and, you know, helpful. Like, what was that quote from the Jane Jacobs book? Oh, there it is. Okay, great. I can just paste it in. Um, and and I would always put the page numbers there. So I had citations, which was, you know, another obsession, like making sure you know the prominence of these ideas and getting that right. Um, but there were the, these hints of, like, maybe there's a higher level kind of collaboration here. And the example that I talked about in this in this Times Magazine, uh, it was a Times Book Review piece, um, Tools for Thought. Um, when I was writing Ghost Map, I had uh, a theme about waste recycling and you know just how a city deals with basically human excrement, which is like the major problem when suddenly you've grown to like two million people in the space of fifty years or whatever. And so I had a big thing about like waste removal and recycling and things like that, and. I did a search in Devon Think on that, and it brought back this seemingly unrelated quote about how our skeletons are basically an evolutionary um, kind of adaptation of uh, calcium, which is a waste product of cell metabolism. So we were cells were expelling all this calcium, and then evolution was like, hey, actually, I could use that. Maybe we could build a backbone with that. Um, and so seemingly unconnected ideas, but I was like, oh, actually, this is cool. I can do a whole riff that goes from like the way the cities recycle, the way evolution recycles, I'm going to stop. And that became like seven pages of Ghost Map. But when I stepped back, I was like, who had that idea? Like, was it me or was it the software? And on some level, it was kind of both of us. Like I described it, I think in that piece, as like a duet. Like it felt like nice. there were two different kinds of intelligence kind of working together in that. And a big part of it that is is crucial, and it's crucial to what we're trying to do with Notebook LM as well, is I curated all those quotes, right? So there's kind of like my human intelligence reading all those books, deciding that these are the most interesting and surprising and you know useful facts or passages in all those quotes. 
And then there's the software's ability to maybe detect connections and, and certainly scan the entire body of work faster than I could. And then it surfaces a bunch of connections, potential connections, and then we get back to my human intelligence at the other end of the chain saying like, oh, that's a keeper. And so we're doing different things at different stages, but like that was a new kind of creative workflow for me that I got a sense of in that. Well, it's funny because you were talking earlier about these glimpses of the future where you see that something could exist, but it doesn't yet exist. And you just have this, this, this dream and the dream that I have that I really want to manifest in the world is I want to be able to sit down at lunch with you. And what I want to be able to do is basically have some sort of hologram type thing that is basically this third party source notes that is researching what we're talking about. So you and I are riffing and here we go. So I have gone on a walk in Central Park every day for like the last four or five days and the architecture is fantastic. So there's been a few buildings and now I'm starting to think, okay, what? Why is the architecture in Central Park so good? Because it's so good that something's going on. Okay, so we start talking about that. And then you're like, hey, well, what's an example? And then there's that place, like if you sort of walk up from, uh, call it like 6th Avenue, and you sort of walk up and there's that area with the fountain, and you walk through this beautiful place, but I don't know what it's called, but I know that it's really beautiful on top. But now as we're having this conversation, I could basically like pull open the hologram and you and I could look at it. Now we could begin to rotate it with our hands. And then you and I could be looking at this image that's right there together. And I know that the technology is basically there. Now with Apple Vision yeah. Pro, yeah. we're going to be able to see something like that. And it's like that glimpse into the future. And it's the same sort of thing where over time as well, the, the tool, the technology, it becomes symbiotic with who you are. So you begin to know it. It begins to know you. And you begin to work together. And it leads into that question, well, who discovered what? And it's almost like when someone has one of those imaginary friends when when they're a kid, it's 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 you're just in that duet together. Yeah. I feel this way a little bit with my kids because they're so fast at typing on their phones huh. that that we'll be sitting at the dinner table. We don't, you know, have phones out at the dinner table, but like some fact will come up and we'll be like, well, I don't know, actually, if that, you know, during Kennedy's administration, if that's what they passed is what we talk about at dinner. <laughs> and uh and, and they'll just be like, uh, yes, it was. Like they can just get to the fact so fast on their phones that I feel like they already have a kind of a version of that instant kind of knowledge bank that's there. But um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really great. And I think, yeah, the part of the question is with the with the AI part of this all is to what extent does your kind of language model co, co creator collaborator. Um, really get to know you over time, right? Like these are your obsessions. Um, well, this is something that stands out with Notebook LM is how much state there is. So most LLM tools, you have the interaction and there's a state within within the interaction. So within that chat file on ChatGPT, it knows where you are, what the conversation is like. Yeah. What you've built in is that you can save individual parts yeah. and then over time, it retains a much deeper understanding of the individual who it's working with. Yeah. And that seems to have been a very deliberate design decision for you. The, the, I think one of the most powerful things about Opa which we're still 
one, we're learning how to explain it to people. And two, we're still rolling out some of the features that really do this. But um, in a way, it's we tried to redesign the whole kind of note-taking research tool um, application, all the conventions of it, um, from the ground up, knowing that you have a language model there. Instead of like adding a language model into an existing UI, we tried to like think about how you would do it differently with that as a kind of a given. And and part of what the interface is designed to do is to give you really easy ways to focus the AI on different things. <laughs> and so the first thing you do is like you load up your sources that are, you know, let's say it's reading uh, for your class. So you've got a bunch of textbooks that you would load in there or something like that, or it's your research notes for the book that you're writing. So then the model is like kind of grounded in, in that information. So you are effectively saying, hey, large language model, um, I want you to be focused on this text. And anything I ask you, I want you to answer based on this text, and I want you to show citations. I want to see the work. I want to be able to jump immediately to the quote that you're using to answer this question. Um, but then you can take some notes, and you could be reading through you know, your textbook, and you could get to like a complicated passage, and you can just select that passage and say, hey, now I want you to explain this passage. So I don't want you to pay any attention to anything else. I just want you to look at this paragraph and, and help me make sense of it. Then you take a bunch of notes and then you can select all those notes and you say, now I want you to focus just on the notes that I've selected and I want you to turn those into a draft of a blog post or I want you to create a study guide for me so that I can learn this material more. And so what you're doing now, technically you could do this in ChatGPT. Um, you could go into your textbook, copy the text, switch tabs, go in there, paste it in, right? Please help me understand that, get the understanding of that, take that back to your notebook and paste it in there. But the the kind of cognitive load of switching, but like the switching costs of going back and forth between all those different applications and tabs and things like that is just, it's like really bad for your thinking and your creativity. You're not in a flow state when you're doing it. You're just kind of like, oh, now I have to copy from here and paste in here and I hit return and I this. So notebook is 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 designed to kind of like do that all in one unified kind of place. Um, and I find it incredibly powerful, but it's a different way of working. And so like, I, I, we joke in the office like, I, no one knows how to use notebook LM you know, better than I do. Like I have spent so much time with it. Um, so the, the trick is now like explaining it to people and like getting people to understand this slightly different workflow. Tell me about this tagline then to go from information to insight. What is that process like and why is that this very central one-liner? Yeah. I. So one of the things that I did the other day, which was just amazing that you can do this, um, I have a notebook inside of Notebook LM where I just write all my random thoughts, my kind of hunches about um, the, the software itself and what we're doing. And so it's everything from I start drafting a little blog post about it or I have a kind of crazy idea for a new feature or notes to myself and it's just a bunch of random things and so the so the other day I just selected the whole notebooks for like I don't know 45 different notes something it's like 7,000 words worth of stuff selected the whole thing and I just said what is the most interesting idea <laughs> in this collection of notes and it came back with I thought actually a, a good one um, so one of the things that notebook does is when you ask a question based on your sources, we suggest follow-up questions based on what you've asked and what your sources contain. And so if you're reading that American history textbook and you ask about the Columbian Exchange, it will say like, 
oh, you know, what about asking about smallpox and the impact on, you know, indigenous communities, whatever, I'll give you three or four. And so you can explore a complex new document by following these kind of chains of questions. And it, you, it's a re really interesting way to kind of get your bearings in something. And I was describing it to myself in this note as that it was like conversational hypertext. And it, there, there actually aren't links, right? They're not blue words that you're clicking on. You're, you're just like, I ask this one question, then I ask a follow-up question, I ask a follow-up question. And that is a really powerful way to learn. But it wasn't possible before unless you, you know, were lucky enough to like talk to the author of the book or like a teacher that was really well-versed in the book that you could ask a question of. But you couldn't do it in any other form. And now, now we can. Well, what I always say is that the LLMs are really good at three things. They're good at diversity, they're good at accessibility, and they're good at speed. So you say, well, you could do that if you could talk to the author. And I'm yeah. not here to dispute that, yes, if you want to learn a subject, you're trying to learn about Robert Moses, and Robert Caro was sitting right here. I'm not disputing that he would be your guy. Yeah. But, 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 what LLMs are so good for is you can get the diversity through the interpretations of different people. So I could get Robert Moses and I could get six other New York historians. I could create a debate between a few of them. Accessibility. I mean, this tool's free. And then the speed, the instantaneity of it. Who knows how how would we even get Robert Caro here right now? I, I wouldn't even know how to begin doing that. I can do all three of those things instantly. And when I think about where LLM technology is so good, it's along those three vectors, diversity, accessibility, speed. Carol's got to be like 20 blocks from us right I now. Bet he's I, like so we, so, I, mean, I bet he's like probably, 15. So uh, we could probably find him. But, but yes, it's a great point. The speed thing is a really interesting one. And you know what it reminds me of? Um, it reminds me of something that people really, I think, underappreciated about Wikipedia when, it, when Wikipedia kind of got big enough and, and reliable enough to, to use. Um, which is that Wikipedia, and to a lesser extent the web as well, you know, kind of post Google web, um, uh, it enabled you to do very quick explorations of ideas. And for me, this was an unbelievable godsend because I'm constantly, you know, jumping into fields that I have no actual expertise or training in and, you know, kind of be like, what's the deal with that? You know, like, what's the deal with the history of air conditioning? And, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I should read more about that. Um, and so I think that that speed thing is really incredible. And and that's part of what, uh, you know, we're seeing again on a, on a new level, like your ability to, um, in a sense, like kind of create a like dossier or kind of a briefing document on your notes, like that you might do or a research assistant might do. Um, that is very tedious work, right? Like you interview somebody and you want to like, what are the highlights and main themes of this interview? Let's turn it into some kind of structure. That's hours and hours of work. And you can literally just like select that source in Notebook LM and say like, create a briefing doc with key quotes organized by themes. And it's like, it's, it's not always perfect, but like the first draft of it is, is crazy. So that's, winding all the way back to your question about like getting information to insight. Like right. it's like, there's a bunch of raw data here. I'm trying to turn it into like usable insights. Um, it's, it's just an extraordinary platform for that. Well, to your point about information to insight, one way to think about information is that it's 
you have a lot of you have a, a lot of needle, but you also have a lot, a lot of haystack. Insight is about just the needle. And one of the things that I find LLMs to be very good at is give me the one-liner. Give me the one sentence. And what I like to do is I just like to hit refresh, 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 just to see how is it trying to compress and distill this idea? Not so I can necessarily just take what it gives me, but so all of a sudden it's like a cubist painting where I can see the same thing from this angle, from that angle, a little bit from above, a little bit from below, over and over again. And it sort of gives me, it's sort of like when you're watching those NBA games or a football game and the camera sort of swings around from one lens to the other. Woo! And I like looking at ideas from 360 angles like that. You know, one thing that um, we haven't rolled this out yet, but I'm really excited about this is something I've always wanted as a writer. Um, we haven't talked a lot about like writing on the level of sentences. Let's um, get into it. My skills skew towards the stuff we've talked about, the architecture, the kind of... Um, storytelling, uh, those kind of bigger things. And I'm, I find that I have to work hard to make my sentences interesting. My default setting is to make this as intelligible as possible on the level of the sentence. Um, so I think of like the sentences are very clear. The overall structure of the book and the argument of the book, the story the book is telling is actually very adventurous and maybe experimental. And, but this, but you, you're rarely laboring on the level of the sentence to understand what's going on. Um, and I think that is good. That has helped me in many ways. But I sometimes find, particularly with books like Enemy of All Mankind or or Infernal Machine, which I want to feel somewhat novelistic, um, that I have to work a little bit to make the sentences more just aesthetically interesting. And it also help, hurts me that I'm not a particularly visual person. Like my visual memory is very weak compared to my semantic memory, my linguistic memory. Like I can remember, I can think of a paragraph when I'm on the subway and come home and like transcribe it like word for word almost. Um, but I'll meet someone and my wife will be like, what did they look like? And I'll be like, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't, they were a man as far as I could tell. Wow. <laughs> you know, I just don't have much. So uh, I do you would, think that that's a trade-off? I, well, yeah. Is it, is it actually a trade-off like to, to is it um, Cause because presumably you're one, so good at yeah. this that maybe you're actually I think that's really right. bad at that. I don't know that. whether, and I don't know whether it's just because I focused on that, and and that other part of my brain is atrophied, or if I came into the world with less visual memories, probably some combination of that. Um, but I used to joke that I would like never be able to be a novelist because I would like introduce the characters and be like, he had a nose and two ears. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just like, could you give us a little more? So. But but on the level of sentence too, like I sometimes find that um, you just I think everybody falls prey to this. You get stuck in a certain way, in a certain rhythm, certain you know um, pacing of the sentences, and or sometimes you just write it out and you're like, this is just a little bit boring. But I can't think of another way to phrase this. Um, and so <laughs> we built this thing that we have we haven't turned on yet, but it's pretty cool that we. Um, I was calling paragraph thesaurus and it's basically like a thesaurus for the entire paragraph. Love it. So I was like, take this whole paragraph and just rewrite it, but keep the meaning the same, but just like, create different metaphors, create different things, whatever. And cause, and, and it's not so much that I would necessarily use it directly, but it's just a way of like getting out of your routines. Well, I think the core thing here is that the brain is much better at, contending with something that already exists yeah, yeah, than, yeah. than going from zero to one. So totally, what you're doing there isn't asking the tool to make it, you a statue. 
you're asking the tool to give you different kinds of marble and then you can take those marble those different kinds and then turn it into the statue and what is happening right now is that the computers are getting really good at going from nothing to a decently good something and a lot of the shallow critiques are i'm not getting a good something so two two stories first off but i I remember coming home and telling my wife about this paragraph, the source idea, and being all excited about it. And she's like, um, that is a plagiarism tool. Like that is like, take this paragraph and rewrite it so that it's no longer plagiarizing. And I was like, you're right. So there's all, I should say, like there are issues with that that you, know, you have to figure out how you deploy point, these should things. should we just all be citing Notebook LM, G <laughs> Chat GPT at the bottom? I mean, I almost want a disclosure on my site. Yeah. This I have pulled from yeah. Notebook LM, Chat GPT every time. You should just assume that at this point. Yeah, I have some ideas about how, particularly in the classroom, you you could you could deal with that. It's a version of that. Um, but uh, but the other thing that is funny about the um, paragraph thesaurus, which gets to the craziness of the language model. So, I was testing it on um, uh, Gemini Ultra, which is like the the kind of like the top line Google. Uh, language model that hasn't really been released. I think maybe Bard Advanced now uses it, and we're, we're starting to use it in Notebook. And uh, so I was using another program to kind of test this thing. I'd written the prompt. I was basically like, take this kind of somewhat flat paragraph and basically like make it more interesting and exciting, whatever. And so I gave it uh, a very bland, factual paragraph about the climate of Hawaii. And I was like, okay, transform it with new metaphors and just make it more interesting. And it came back with the most crazy paragraph that was like, the climate of Hawaii is like a symphony that has been conducted by Mother Nature and in the many motifs of going you know, <laughs> so like this totally useless like version. And so all I typed in response was, dude, that is a little over the top. And the model said, uh, you're right. I'm sorry. How about this version? This is a little bit less excessive. And it was perfect. Wow. And I was, what I thought was just so crazy is that I could type, dude, that is a little over the top. And that, that, that was a legitimate instruction to give a computer. And it would, it would give you the, the answer you were looking for. It was just, it was just crazy. <laughs> Tell me more about the sentences. What do you do to refine sentences, refine words? And one of the things that I've sensed, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're fairly skeptical of over editing that you're like, I oh, don't yeah. want to go crazy on my editing. One key advice for writers who are going to be published somewhere um, and are lucky enough to have an editor is just trust the edit. Like, don't you don't have to get it right because there is going to be an edit. And if you have a good editor, like things will get fixed. And if you spend too much time in that first draft trying to get it perfect, you, it's just it's a waste of your time. Like you, you want to kind of charge ahead and get it done. Um, but the the other maybe less... Um, typical advice and kind of strategy that I developed over the years is um, that's specifically to do with the book, but I think it's true to some extent of a longer article, um, is that you are really battling your own familiarity with the text because a book is like a song that you've heard too many times. If you read it 20 times, it loses its appeal, right? And so... Uh, I learned early on in my career that um, my natural inclination was to sit down every day and reread the chapter I'd been writing um, and then start writing, which one was a waste of time, took 
you know, might take 20 minutes to read up to where I was in the chapter. But two, it meant that by the time I finished the chapter, I had read it 20 times or how many days it took me to, to read it. And so it had just all the pleasure and joy and surprise of reading the the my words was just wiped out and I just knew it all by heart. And everything seemed really obvious. Everything seemed really predictable. So much of writing is projecting yourself into your reader's experience and mind and being like, are you confused? Are you excited? Are you energized by this? Are you on the edge of your seat? Are you bored? Like, is this working? And um, if you yourself have read your book a hundred times and you sit down to like do the first pass edit of it and you read it basically a hundred times because you've been reading the chapters as you go, you can't get into that mental state because you're so sick of it. So you can't read it like a, like a new reader basically would. And so the technique that I kind of developed to, to deal with that is to really try actively not to reread as I'm writing the chapters. So I really sit down, I do the Hemingway thing of like, leave yourself a little nugget. So I often like the last couple of words will be like, and then do this and then do that. Like little instructions to myself about where to go next. So I have something to go on and I just write and then I finish the chapter and that I will print out and kind of like read or read on the iPad um, and do an, one pass edit on it. And then I try and put it to bed and not reread it. And so that means that like for the longer books, like Infernal is like almost a hundred thousand words. So, and it took me a long time to write. Um, by the time I get to the end of it and really sit down to read the whole thing, there's whole sections that I forgot, you know, and, and every now and then I've had cases where like, not only have I forgotten whole sections, but I've actually like duplicated sections. <laughs> like, oh, I forgot I already did that riff and now I'm doing it again here because I've totally forgot it. But it gives me the sense of, and it's also, I find that, um, changing the place where you read of course. and the format is really important. Um, so like I will, I used to print it out. Now I do it on the iPad so that I can capture the edits as a PDF and go back and look at them. Um, but, uh, but changing the typeface and where I'm reading it. So I kind of, I'm like, I, I make it look like a book. And, and so I switch over and I read in my chair, not at the desk. Tell me about word choice or sentences. Are there any sentences that you feel like have really been some of your favorite sentences that you've had to develop and develop over time, but you feel like through that work, you ended up with something you were really proud of? Ghost Map, I had this idea from the beginning that I wanted to literally just immerse the reader in like literally in the shit of London uh, that was literally like drowning in human excrement and was killing people. And you had this kind of like scavenger class of, of folks who had, who were playing all these kind of impromptu roles at recycling waste. Um, some of them involving literally like human waste, some of them involving just trash was out there. And so there's this whole like, typology of these different kind of waste removing um uh roles in the city that were not organized by the state at all they were just you know kind of organized by just people being incredibly poor um and so i was like i just want the book to just plunge into that world and there were two parts of that like the first line of that book is like you know something like it is it is the summer of 1854 in London is the city of scavengers is like the opening line. And then there's just like long litany with all their names. They have all these like crazy kind of like Victorian London kind of cockney like names. And 
So it was the combination of like this very short declarative, like punchy sentence. And then this like crazy carnival of just terrible, uh, you know, mid Victorian squalor and urban living, um, with all these like crazy categories and names, stuff like that. And so that, like, that was one of those things where like, I, I had the, I had the idea for it um, probably like months before I actually sat down to write it. Like I knew exactly what it was going to feel like. Um, One of my favorite things to do that I've been playing around with a lot is really long sentences, like 120, 130 words. And having, communicating to the reader that that sentence is going to be a moment. So maybe there's something really serious and the writing is clear words, lots of Anglo-Saxon words that are short, they're direct, and we're getting a boom, 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 boom to the writing. And I'm over time beginning to expand into more romantic language, French-inspired prose, and then adding a little bit more energy. And then I sort of lead into this crescendo of a super long sentence and when you sit down and you say, how is this like a 130 word sentence? How is it going to be? And how am I going to make the reader implicitly, intuitively understand that this is going to be a moment? How do I do that through the construction of what I'm writing? I don't yet have answers, but it's been something that I've been playing around with and having a lot of fun with. It's a really great idea. So I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is... I'm kind of a recovering long sentence writer. Like <laughs> I'm in recovery because I because I I I went so I was a semiotics major in in college and basically kind of studied like critical theory, post-structuralism, whatever you want to call it, Derrida and Foucault and all these kind of folks who were very much in vogue in the late '80s. Um, and I went to grad school in English literature, and so the, all my heroes like wrote these incredibly baroque sentences that had a million parentheses in the middle to qualify the words. Like when I, you know, I want to put that word under erasure, even as I talk about the existence of language. But as an aside, before I even get to the main point of the sentence, I just want to say this other thing here. And so like, that was my like natural kind of mode. And I, and I had to like unlearn some of that to become the writer that, that I became. And I do think that I sometimes have overcompensated for that. Um, and I, I, I think that, that, you know, a glorious long sentence can be an incredible tool uh, to use as well. But the other thing, I mean, I was thinking as you were describing it, that like those set piece sentences are like a big tracking shot in a movie. Like it's like, okay, now we're going to have this crazy tracking shot where we're going to go into the restaurant and we're going to follow them around, whatever. Like, I can't believe it's all one shot. I can't believe they're doing this. You know, this was hard to pull off, you know? And, uh, and I, I have, a, there are a couple of points. Um, Infernal Machine, the new one is like the most cinematic of all the books, I would say. And, there's a um, one of the challenges, which is, which is like an architectural challenge and then a challenge on the level of paragraph. Um, so it's kind of fun to think about how these things come together. Um, I wanted to write a preface for the book that would like set up that there was going to be a kind of thriller-like structure with like literally like ticking clock bombs and police force and investigators and undercover operations that was coming in this book you're reading. Because the next thing you're going to get for the first third of the book is all these different threads starting in Russia and these Russian anarchists and these French police officers. And, you know, you weren't really going to know where it was coming. So I wanted to 
I wanted to plant a bomb in the first, in the preface. And so there is a bomb that goes off in the um, basement of the NYPD in 19, summer of 1915. And so I was trying to figure out like how I could create that kind of tension. And I finally ended up ending the preface has this whole riff where it's like, you know, if there was any place that embodied the kind of clash between the, the new science of investigation and the, the terrorist movements of the day, it was probably the, the NYPD and the identification bureau at the NYPD. And, you know, it was, it was this night in 1915 and it's bustling with energy because there's just been this case has happened or whatever. And then I was like, I really want to convey the camera, like pulling out of that room and going down the stairs and seeing a briefcase suspiciously left in the doorway and the sound of like a clock ticking inside of the briefcase. Nice. And so I had to kind of like, I was, I, so the, the final paragraph is kind of like, but it's not just the activity upstairs that would tell you this is interesting. Like you'd have to really understand what was going on. You'd have to walk out and walk down the stairs and kind of recreated that shot without actually saying like, imagine this is a movie, you know? Um, so like that kind of, that's kind of one of those wonderful things where you're like, it's, you're trying to do something very visual and, and cinematic in a way on the level of like five or six sentences. But the work that it's doing is all about supporting the arc, the entire architecture of the book. Cause you're like, I have to make this little moment so memorable that they tolerate <laughs> all the crazy journey that they're going to be on before they get back to it. Well, you're talking about writing for video. You've made a PBS documentary. Yeah. So how is that different for writing for the, yeah. for text? We did two of them actually. Uh, how we got to now and, and extra life. We also did, um, how we got to now was interesting because we did a, they're, they're book versions of each of those. Um, how we got to now, I really wrote it as a book as we were making the show. So we there were some places where we did a script. The the chapters of that book correspond to the episodes. There were six episodes, six six chapters. And so in some cases, we wrote a script first, and then I adapted it into a chapter, and sometimes I wrote a chapter first. Um, and so by far, it was the most collaborative mm -hmm. Um and if you wanted me to submit a book for kind of best writing prize, I wouldn't submit that. I think because if there's any way to be lazy, you will always choose to be lazy hmm. in your writing. Like if somewhere, if, if like the problem I had with that book was like, if the script had been written, there was a bunch of language describing the invention of air conditioning, say that was, you know, in the script. And I'm sitting here being like, all right, now I have to describe the invention of air conditioning. And I'd be like, well, a paragraph is right there and I have the rights to it. Like I could, you know, and so, and, and TV language is, is different from my style of book language, stuff like that. And I think you can feel that a little bit in, um, and for instance, Wonderland, the book that came after that was going to be a TV show. And then it's kind of second season of how we got to now. And we, interestingly, we couldn't get funding for it, which is annoying. PBS wanted to do it, but we couldn't get funding. So it never became a TV show, but I wrote the book first <laughs> and this, the style of it is very different. Um, but I did like, it was a reminder of how um, solitary, if, if you're writing books, like generally it's a, like, it's one of the most solitary jobs until the book comes out. And then it's a very, very public job for like three weeks if you're lucky. And everybody's like critiquing your work and, and you're out talking to people about it, stuff like that. And then you go back to this very like private world. Um, but the shows were fun and, and 
And working on Notebook LM is fun because it's, it's so much more collaborative. So it's a nice change of pace to just have other people. Yeah. If you, well, I guess this did happen. You walk into a college classroom and you say, all right, this is going to be the Steven Johnson writing class. Mm. How do you structure the curriculum? What do students need to know that you can uniquely teach? I mean, I think it would be, I think there's some little hacks that some of which we've talked about, just about like the workflow, the, the way you edit, the way you read, um, you know, but I think the thing that, that I have thought about um, and kind of push the envelope as, as much as most folks is, is using the digital tools um, as a, as a research and, and collaborative kind of thinking mode, whether, whether it's Notebook LM or even think or Scribner, which I, I've used for many years and, and loved. Um, and just that idea that, you know, the, the software has become vastly more helpful in coming up with ideas and organizing your ideas and making new connections, um, that, you know, it's not just anymore about just being able to search and find the thing you want, but actually is, can be part of the creative process in a really kind of profound way. Um, I think that's probably what, <laughs> that's why people would be attending the class, I think, would be to get those kinds of insights. Um, you know, another thing that I wrote about a little bit with my, my use of Scrivener um, that's related to the, the hunch idea, but slightly different, which is this kind of idea of clustering of ideas. So, um, and, and, and Notebook LM can do this as well. I did it kind of manually in Scrivener. Um, so, for instance, with with Wonderland, which is a book about the history of the play, uh, history of play and delight and amusement and how it drove a lot of surprising innovations, um, I you know it's a very open ended topic, right? I knew I was going to write a little bit about music. I knew I was going to write about like early automata, like robots and things like that. And I knew I was going to write about spices because that was interesting. But I, you know, it could be anything, right? So I would just like collect snippets of things. Um, and I kind of read very widely and I would just kind of throw the quotes into Scrivener. And Scrivener has this very elegant mode for kind of like, you can have these little atomic units that can be quotes or little notes and things like that. And then you can kind of just drag them into folders. And so I would kind of like be kind of looking at all the snippets and I'd be like, you know, it seems like there's an interesting little cluster here about the connection between robotics and music that I hadn't really seen before, but like, there's something there. Like I've noticed there are like eight things there. And so I would kind of like create a little mini folder for robotics and music and I'll just drag a bunch of the clips in there. And then you would kind of see like over time, like, oh, that pile, like you'd have these little piles of kind of like fragmentary ideas, like piles of hunches basically to keep the metaphors intact. And eventually you kind of look down and you'd be like, oh, I got like three or four big piles here. Like, this one's really developed, this one's really developed, this one's really developed. And at that point, one of the cool things about the interface of Scrivener is you can take all those little snippets and just turn them into a single document very easily. Um, so we we kind of borrowed that notebook has a feature that is combined to single notes. So you can grab a bunch of notes and whoop, put them into one note so you can then kind of treat them like a document. And that process is kind of like, once you get a big enough kind of pile of interesting ideas that seem to be clustering around a certain idea, you're kind of like, all right, that's a chapter. Yes. You know? And, but you have to go through that process of like, you know, I'm sure it's different if you're like writing a like 
very traditional biography or something like that, where like you really, the structure is really like anchored in events that are known and that you have a timeline before you start. But I think for most books, like the, that structure is really open-ended at the beginning. And so you got to figure out like, what are like, what are the little clusters of ideas that fit together? The word that's coming to mind for me is emergence. Yeah. 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 No, it's a very bottom up kind of way. Very bottom up, which was, yes, you're alluding to my second book, Emergence. Yeah. And, and like, um, in a way, the, like, the trickiest book like that for me was um, Where Good Ideas Come From, which was ultimately organized in these kind of patterns of innovative environments. So this, it talked about slow hunches, liquid networks, adjacent possible, serendipity, error, one or two others. Um, and it took me months and months and months to figure out that structure. Um, like I had a million stories and a million kind of lessons, but I didn't, I just didn't know how to cluster them. And I had a, in kind of building on emergence in a way, um, I had this initial idea that it would be kind of across scales. And so there'd be a chapter about like how your, how innovation and creativity works on the level of brain science. And then it would be like your workspace. And then it would be like, the office and then it would be like the city and then it would be like the media platform or whatever and like each chapter would kind of like you'd go up the chain like that and i like tried to write that i think i did a few drafts of chapters like that and it it got too it you got stuck at each level sure so you're like in the brain chapter you were just like reading neuroscience stuff and then you got to the cities and it was like it was jane jacobs you know it was like and the whole fun of that book was like, I'm going to take you from here and there. I'm going to take you all, you know, connect all these different ideas, all these places. But each chapter got too siloed. Um, and so I finally, um, and this is actually when I started using Scrivener. Scrivener had a kind of like note card interface. I didn't actually write that book in Scrivener, but I, but I organized it with the note cards. I wrote it, I think, in Word. I think that may be the last book I wrote in Word. Um, but you could kind of, drag around these note cards in Scrivener. And so that was the way I was like, okay, I can see these different patterns. Now I can figure this out. Um, but that took, it was really, really hard. And it, it you know, it's in some ways is the hardest for me, it's the hardest part of it. Um, although I think it's one of the things that I do best. Um, but it's, it just takes a lot of thinking. I asked about the class that you would teach and something I want to try with our Rite of Passage students is an exercise where you take a paragraph and then what you do to develop your voice is we have eight different images of architectural styles, you know, oh, arts, yeah, Baroque, yeah. modernist, yeah. and then brutalist. And you rewrite the paragraph based on the architectural on the, on the architecture style. style. I love that. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, that's a great idea. So I, that's even more clever than something I used to do consciously. So when I was in college and I was you know, kind of writing in this literary theory mode, um, I would deliberately write papers in the style of like, I'll be like, okay, this paper is written in the style of Michel Foucault. And then I'll be like, this paper is written in the style of Gautry Spivak or whatever. And, and I would kind of like try and, and, you know, it ended up like, um, you, you eventually build your own voice out of some weird mix of all those different styles. I would say imitate then innovate. Yeah. You yeah. you start off, you're imitating other people. It's sort of like, I love it when you go to the Met and somebody has the easel and the canvas and they're they're sketching the the statue or the painting in front of them. 
I was at the, where was I? I think it might've been the British Museum. I think I, I know it was in London. I think it was the British Museum or the National Gallery. And there was this guy and he's sketching this beautiful Greek statue with this movement and this flow. And I went up to him and I'm like, what are you, what are you trying to get at? He's like, well, I'm trying to sketch that, but I'm trying to exaggerate the motion. So in the statue, there's no wisps, but in my drawings, I can sort of add these lines and I can create this movement on with my pen that doesn't actually exist. And I'm trying to communicate that. And I was like, yes, yeah. yes, yes. That is exactly how an artist should be thinking. It is the imitation, try to copy it and bring it into your own field of view, but then to add something and not just copy, but to really be generative there too. I, you know, I, and that actually continued on. I mean, I remember um, I was still kind of coming out of the academic prose style. So I, I started writing kind of journalism in like 94 and 95, right? As I was doing stuff on the web for the first time. And um, Gladwell started publishing in the New Yorker right around that point. Yeah. And I remember just being struck by the he would he would often um end sections with very short punchy little you know five word sentences and like i don't think i had written a five word sentence in like 15 years at that point <laughs> you know, like i just did like all my sentences were like 100 words long and i was like oh that's so nice like you can write longer and then but you just get to the end of that section you're like boom there's just this little button at the end and it's done and so I remember thinking that. I remember um, before I wrote Ghost Map, I read uh, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which was kind of like I was reading it somewhat to prep myself to write. It was the first book that I'd written in kind of historical narrative mode. And so just like how he, which which also had a kind of thriller detective structure, but was also trying to recreate a, a city in time, Chicago in that case, not London. But so it had a lot of commonality. So it was just like studying like the way that, he did that. And I went um, back to Larson's book, actually, The Splendid and the Vile that he just came out with, because um, Infernal Machine has a lot of dialogue because there's so many um, uh, autobiographies that have been written. Emma Goldman, most famously, the anarchist. Um, and then there's so many contemporaneous news reports where seemingly these reporters are like in the events as they're happening. It's very weird. And so I had. I didn't have to invent any dialogue, which I would never do. I just had whole scenes where like conversations are on the record, like they're they're part of the historical record. And so I could recreate what people said to each other. And I never really had that before. I had a little bit of that in Enemy, but not very much. Um, and so Larson's book, Splendid in the Vile, does the same thing because he had all these diary entries um, during London during the Blitz. And so I was like, okay, now I'm, I'm going to... There's another novelistic feeling to this book here that I've never really done. So I want to look at another nonfiction writer who's done it in that way. So what'd you learn? I just, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure if it's in some of those things, it's not even conscious, you know, you're just kind of like, you just get a feel for like how it's going to work and you just kind of, then you just remember that tone. Yeah. I remember I had it. a conversation with my grandpa before he died when he was, we had a piece of paper. We we're throwing them in the trash. I was like, I was looking at the trash can. I was like, okay, I'm gonna think about this. He's like, stop thinking, stop thinking. You're actually way better when you just throw the paper in the trash can. And I was like, wow, Grandpa, you're right. I could just sort of look, throw, look, throw. And there's something about the consciousness, like a lot of 
especially with these sorts of things, the body just knows, but before the mind even figures out what's going on. And I think that's the, the yeah, the style thing is very interesting because it often is something that you just, you, you, you get in, you slowly develop a groove for a certain kind of style that you get by just reading other people and reading yourself and you slowly kind of get to it. But it's often not, you know, the, the, um, architecture stuff that, that we've spent so much time talking about is very conscious. You're very much aware, like, I am trying to figure out what is the structure for this book and what should the first chapter be? Like, it's, you know, but like, what is the vibe of this sentence or the way that I write is, is, is less, um, deliberate, I think sometimes. Um, and, and that is one of the places where I think, again, the, the AI story has been so fascinating is, and you really see this with the visual models like Dolly, um, but it's true also of the language models, which is that the ability of these machines to capture style, like that you can say, I want a picture of like Pokemon in the style of Rembrandt. And it really like <laughs> seems to get the style of Rembrandt in this way that you would have thought that was, yeah, okay, you can learn to identify a Pokemon versus, you know, a person, but that you could capture like the, the style of a, a painter um, in, a, in a really clever way um, just by like predicting the next pixel, which is basically all they do, um, is astonishing. I want to close with one final question. What do you think is the core idea that your work is orbiting around? Because I see two parallel tracks, and I've been thinking about this for the past few hours now, of you have this narrative nonfiction drama track true crime, London, disease, and then you have this fervor for creativity and innovation and connecting ideas. What is the synthesis of those two things? I, I, I actually can't find it right now. I think there are two, I, I do think you could divide my work in books into two different strains. You know, there's a kind of storytelling mode, historical storytelling mode, and then there's the largely history of innovation, kind of how does innovation work? That's mostly what the, the other books are about in one way or another. Um, and a little bit of kind of science in, in there. Um, but I think the the common theme, you know, in all the history books, I, I was describing this in a, in a Substack email that I sent out yesterday. Um, there's a whole riff in, in Infernal Machine about, uh, so much of it is about dynamite and about bombs going off. And so naturally I was like, well, I have to understand what made that wave of dynamite bombs, terrorist actions possible. And so thus I have to understand how, dynamite came in the world, which led me back to Alfred Nobel and his life, which is extraordinary and got me thinking about like the state of chemistry at that particular moment in time and like why Nobel was able to like invent this thing and why it basically like ended up getting co-opted by all these political actors, which was not part of his vision at all, which is unintended consequences and technology is a big part of my obsession in all my books. And so there's always this attempt in the storybooks and the history books to say, here's what happened, and I'm going to tell you what happened in the most interesting, suspenseful way possible so that you want to keep reading. But I really want to think about why it happened and like what were the deeper forces, not just the arc of this person's life and the random collisions of their life, but like what were the underlying forces that really, you know, when you see paradigm shifts or revolutions, political revolutions, technological re revolutions, scientific revolutions, like what is why did that revolution happen at that moment? Or like, why did, why did terrorism get invented in this particular period of time? Why did the modern surveillance state 
get invented in response to terrorism in that particular point in time. Those are big questions in Infernal Machine. And so those questions can only be answered um, across different disciplines and across different scales, time scales. Right. Um, so to understand the anarchist bombers, you have to understand the chemistry of dynamite. Um, and you have to understand the economics of dynamite, and you have to understand the political philosophy of anarchism and its relationship to violence, and you have to understand these particular actors in their particular world, and you have to be able to go back in time, in that case, you know, 60 years to Nobel. In other cases, in other points, I go back 300, 400 years to tell the story of how India became the richest country in the world at that particular moment in time when Henry Every was a pirate. Um, so... I think it's thinking across disciplines and thinking across scales. Um, that's a common theme in the idea books, and it's a common theme in the history books. Um, and the other words that come to mind is underlying forces. As you said, I really want to call attention to that because that, when you said those words, I was like, yes, the yeah. underlying forces shows up over and over. Yeah. And what's nice about it is it's an intellectual idea that when you do it right, also carries that same weight of surprise that we were talking about at the beginning. Like you're surprised by, oh, I didn't think that event was going to happen. And you're surprised by, I had never really thought about the fact that like a, an invention with like nitroglycerin ended up like influencing like the birth of the FBI. That like, I didn't think about that connection. Um, and, and so when you can do that kind of level of surprise where you have a page turner surprise and you have a like deep forces surprise at the same time, like that's, that's, the sweet spot that I go for. Boom, boom. That was fun. Really fun. Thanks, I really man. enjoyed it. I could do that all day. <laughs>